We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash Squared. Huna London, Al-Qism Al-Arabi Bihayati Al-Idha'ati Al-Britannia. Wa-Aydan, Huna London, BBC. Hello and welcome. I'm Farah Jassat, Head of Podcasts at Intelligence Squared. That was the voice of Mahmoud Al-Musallimi speaking on BBC Arabic Radio's final broadcast after 85 years on air. Today, we're going to take a look at the World Service's role in global history, how millions of people around the world today still depend on it for reliable information, and ask if fundamental changes in its funding could disrupt this. The BBC World Service, launched in 1932 and originally an arm of the British Empire, has continuously needed to adapt in order to survive historical changes. As of September 2022, it operated in 41 languages with a weekly audience of some 364 million people. Launched in 1938, Arabic was the BBC's first foreign language service, but due to funding changes and a number of cost-cutting measures, the service is ending, as well as services in Persian, Hindi and Chinese. I'm joined now, in World Service style, by Emma Robertson, history and co-author of BBC World Service Overseas Broadcasting, who's speaking to us from Australia, and Hussam El-Sokari, former head of BBC Arabic, who joins us from Egypt. Emma, Hussam, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Emma, can we go back to the very beginning? When and why was the World Service first started? Or should I say the British Empire Service? Yeah, that's right. The BBC Empire Service started in December 1932. And there'd been some experimental broadcasts overseas before that, but they were very hit and miss. There was a real desire to get some sort of overseas broadcasting happening from London. And they were very much, um, the BBC and the UK were falling behind a lot of the other nations in their overseas broadcasting. Countries like the USA um, and Holland had got going in the 1920s. And this was in a context in which the British Empire I was, you know, there were there were rumblings, there were it was, you know, the uncertainties of the interwar period about what was going to happen with the empire. So there was a desire to shore up imperial sentiment and, and the feeling amongst the especially the British expats overseas that they were part of one sort of great family of Britain. So it was very much an imperial sort of mission and, and the BBC Empire Service was uh, an English language service and its intention was to reach those overseas, the Brits, who would be then kind of responsible for holding the empire together. So its audience were British white expats initially. When did that thinking about the audience change? 
Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the expectation that it would be white British expats and especially men initially. That was the idea. There would be the lonely listener in the bush, the white colonial male um, busy doing his empire job um, overseas. They didn't really account for women listeners at first either. They, they didn't really see that women would be listening and they, they certainly were and they were started to write in quite early to say how important the empire service was to them as British expat women overseas. Um, but then, you know, th- there was that sense that other people were um, listening. I think especially as the sort of lead up to the Second World War, the tensions around fascism and what was happening in Germany and, and what the German and Italian broadcasters were doing, there was that sort of concern about how to reach people uh, who might be subject to that kind of what they saw as propaganda. So they started to think about that and that was changing, but also in terms of the empire too. So during the Second World War, when the empire was meant to be fighting together, there was this con- this recognition that you might not just be the white expats that might be listening. It might be other audiences and they needed to start to rethink. But I mean, that expat audience, I think still carried on after even the Second World War, you know, well into the 60s, there was still a concern with the expat overseas, but an increasing awareness as the empire was really crumbling in that post-war period that there were other listeners. And and the BBC Empire Service was no longer the Empire Service. It became the General Forces Service, General Overseas Service English. It eventually became the BBC World Service officially in, in 1965. And other languages, as I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, were being added from 1938 with the Arabic Service. You've mentioned a few times the international context of broadcasting, particularly before the war in the 30s with the Italians and the Germans. Can you just expand on that a little bit for our audience? So this is, you know, in the lead up to the Second World War, what's happening in those countries and what are other international broadcasters using their services for? Yeah, well, the the rise of uh, fascism in in Germany and Italy in the 1930s was a real concern within Britain and what was going to happen there. And um, the Germans were broadcasting in in different languages. The Italians, the Bari um, were broadcasting in Arabic. And there were these real concerns that the Germans and the Italians especially were broadcasting in other languages in order to engage in propaganda and anti-British propaganda. And so there was real tensions in the 1930s There was that policy of appeasement by Britain, but also the preparation for war, that sense that war might be coming. Um, And so there was that real concern about where was Britain going to sit? How is it going to exercise its influence if that was going to happen? They'd really sort of clung to this idea of that they would stick to English because they didn't want to be engaged in propaganda that as the Germans and the Italians were doing. So propaganda was something really bad, but there was that increasing sense that actually they were going to have to broadcast in languages other than English if they were actually going to reach audiences and to really counter that anti-British propaganda that the Germans and the Italians were engaging in. So that was a real motivation in the 30s then to expand, to actually start broadcasting in languages other than English. So we'll definitely come back to starting in other languages, especially in Arabic. But this uh, mention of propaganda is interesting, that it was only seen as being propaganda when it was in a foreign language. How was it viewed in English? Because surely other people around the world might have seen it as being propaganda just with it the English language. Yeah. And I think this is so one of the fascinating things for me too, is exactly that, that, that tension that I think when it was in English, uh, it could be seen as well, we're broadcasting in English to our English expats overseas. So it's not propaganda. It's just sort of talking to our sort of countrymen as it was at the time, you know, those lonely listeners in the bush. And so it wasn't seen as as propaganda, whereas as soon as you sort of start to 
speaking a different language and you're trying to target a particular audience, that's not your national audience. That was the sort of implications that it had. It suddenly sort of took on that association of propaganda. And that, I think it was a bit of a dirty word, I think, within that UK context, that it was something that wasn't something the British did. Um, and I think it's interesting how this sort of come round to the power of radio as a sort of tool of soft power and that it's it can be um, not sort of overt propaganda, but it can be just about, you know, music and entertainment and, and, and that can have an influence. So it's interesting how that propaganda had that really negative association and was linked to moving into foreign languages at the time. Well, it always had a very close relationship with the British government, particularly the Foreign Office. Can you just clarify what was the relationship between the World Service and the British government? Was it an arm of the state? Well, the BBC very much asserted its editorial independence. Initially, the BBC were funding the service themselves. So it was only when um, in 1938, when have the uh, foreign languages coming in with the Arabic service, that they get a grant in aid from the Foreign Office. So that's when you really get that government um, involvement. And then it was that real tricky um, balancing act of not wanting to be seen as the arm of government, but yet obviously getting um, state money. So the government could tell the BBC what languages they wanted them to broadcast in, and or the BBC could take its ideas to the front office and say, we want to use these particular languages. But there was that desire to keep that editorial independence and not to have the government interfere in particular uh, programs of the time. They weren't going to vet sort of every program, but it was, there was a lot of tension and to and fro and at certain moments, the government was very frustrated with the BBC for not putting forward a positive view of what Britain were doing. And, and certainly 1956 in Suez, that was a real moment of, of flashpoint of the government saying, you know, this is not what you should be broadcasting overseas about what Britain is doing. You shouldn't be giving a negative image. And they did at one point have a representative of the Foreign Office stations at the BBC and officially to kind of look at what was going out. But it, there was always that recognition too that for the BBC to be respected, it had to have an editorial independence. It had to be seen overseas as being a little bit distant from government. People didn't always believe that, but it was part, I think, what was became so important to the BBC World Service. And that, I think, was really cemented in World War II, that sense that they were objective, that they were able to present both sides of the, sort of the negative and the positive. And that got the BBC a lot of trust, I think, during the Second World War. So, Emma, you've mentioned, you know, 1938 and the launch of the first foreign language service, BBC Arabic. Hassam, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the start of BBC Arabic? Yeah, as Emma said, it was a, a very tense situation internationally with the Second World War uh, looming. And it, it started as a propaganda tool. Uh, there is no doubt about it. Uh, even though that there was an attempt to craft the news in such a way that it appeals to Arabs, but it was um, a propaganda tool at the time. A number of things happened in the history of the Arabic service that turned it into a slightly different product within this particular market. One is the fact that you needed things other than news to broadcast to your audiences. So you started seeing a growing number of programs, uh, feature programs, literature, poetry, Arabic language specific programs, uh, really very linguistic, like قَوْلٌ ala قَوْل, say on say, as they translate it literally. Uh, you started seeing drama produced in the BBC Arabic service by people like Farouk Demirdash. And these were uh, Shakespeare's plays uh, adapted into Arabic and uh, performed by well-known actors uh, from across the region, cinema, books. And these were products that 
catered for the taste of Arabs across the whole region. And for this, Arab audiences tended to feel that this service is a unifying service in a way. It was the only of its kind with that production standard that catered for their needs. The other important thing that happened is the development of editorial guidelines. The World Service and the Arabic Service as part of it were in a unique position within the BBC because they are coming from within a media organization, a trusted media organization that is trying to find its feet as a global broadcaster and trying to create a product that is trusted by everyone. So when the editorial guidelines uh, were developed, they were developed for everyone in the organization. Then that is different than any other language service that has been created by any other foreign ministry, you know, either in Germany, if you're talking about the Deutsche Welle, or you're talking about SAWA in the United States or Voice of America in the United States, you're talking about France 24, if you're talking about the Russian services, you know, uh, Russia Today, you're talking about products that are directly managed by either intelligence services or foreign services by the foreign office. And that means that they have a very, very strong link to the politicians and the government, uh, turning these products into clear voices of the establishment or the government in these particular countries. Within the BBC, things were different. I mean, I, I had situations in my career where during the um, war in Iraq, for example, I was head of BBCArabic.com, and I had a request from the foreign office to put a blog for the foreign minister at the time. And I refused, I declined, because I do not have a space on the website for the British foreign minister. I have a space probably to create a set of blogs for different foreign ministers across the region, and that probably would include a blog for the foreign minister. But I didn't have a blog for the Iraqi foreign minister, for example. And, you know, I, I said to them that this will damage my position and my credibility within the region for which we are broadcasting. I didn't ask, I didn't refer it to um, the head of service at the time. I didn't refer it to anyone. And they accepted my explanation and they never came back to me. I don't think this would happen in any other broadcasting operation in any other country. The board of trustees worked as a shield between the BBC editorial teams and the government. If the government had any issues with the BBC, they would go to the trustees, the BBC trustees, but they wouldn't go to us. They wouldn't talk. There was no direct talk between um, at least people on my level as a head of service um, and the, um, the foreign office. That didn't exist. So the, and, and that was also clear within the editorial guidelines, within what we used to call the blue Bible or the red Bible, depending on the cover and the edition. Uh, and, and these are editorial guidelines that is published on the BBC website. Everybody can, can see it and they can read it. And they can complain from anything we do. The public can complain based on what they read on the editorial guidelines. If we, if we breach the trust of our audiences and make a mistake, people can make a complaint they receive a response within two, two weeks. If they want to refer it back, they can do that. And there is a clear process about this. So there is a strong sense of accountability and a strong desire within the organization through its processes, its editorial processes and its editorial reviews, which were weekly, monthly, even quarterly. We, we did larger reviews of uh, our editorial products. And, and that was unique. And that was across the board, you know, not just in, in the BBC English services or not just for the news departments that are producing bulletins for the British audiences. It was for, for everybody in the BBC 
and that maintained the integrity of the BBC Arabic operation throughout the years. Just going back a little bit historically uh, with BBC Arabic, Hossam, can you speak about moments, you know, so we spoke up to World War II, um, you know, post-World War II with things like the Suez crisis that Emma mentioned. What was the role of Arabic at that time? Well, I, I think there were, there were different accounts on, on, on this particular uh, event. And I think at the, at the time, there was a desire within the British establishment, within the British government, that, the, that, that, that at a time of, of conflict, uh, the BBC should reflect the, the voice of the British government. And I think the establishment at the time was not happy with what the BBC was doing. Yet there has been a, a, a set of resignations within the Arabic service as a result of the uh, war. And that moment of tension between the government and, and the BBC and the BBC and its own staff because of what's happening in the Suez uh, was remarkable in history. So in, in moments like this, you, you will find pressure from the government. That happened also during the Iraq war. It happened with the Andrew Gilligan affair. It happened several times. And, and every single time, I think the BBC tries to maneuver its way, not upsetting the government very much by uh, sort of putting some processes for uh, further training and uh, reintroducing trust to its staff. But, but it's costly, you know, it, it's costly because you, you could see also some of the very big resignations in the history of the, um, of the organization. So bringing it up to the modern day, how important is BBC Arabic currently in the region and how many people has it been reaching? I, I think the figures go around 40. I mean, if you, if you take the last of, you know, the last part of your question, the figure is around 40 million. I don't know if you can say users because, because they, they are trying to combine, you know, or to compare or to count apples and, and, and pears and oranges at the same time. You have viewers, you have listeners, and you have internet users. And I think the combined figure is around 40 million. They say that the uh, percentage of audiences that consume Arabic audio who listen on traditional analog devices is around 5%. I heard also figures like 2%, uh, and I don't know which one, which one is, is more correct. But I think the most recent uh, figure that has been announced was 5% out of the total number of listeners. Over the years, uh, the BBC radio stream was very important to audiences, especially th those underprivileged audiences, those who do not have access to internet computers and sometimes they don't have access to a TV. And we, we tended to receive letters from people uh, in remote parts of Sudan, Yemen, uh, Mauritania, Chad, um, uh, Libya, um, uh, people who work on the lands, peasants or, or even shepherds, whose only access to modernity, information and, and entertainment was the BBC. You know, they listened to its poetry programs, they listened to its drama programs, they followed the news on the BBC, and they had a very strong connection with the presenters. You know, they write personal letters and they expect responses uh, from them. And, and that sort of interactive tradition in the BBC has been going on for quite a long time. I, I, I did introduce Noqtat Hawar, or Point for Debate, in 2003. But that was not the first time the BBC tries to listen to audience and engage with them in this particular way. This, this was a program where we phone people because also we, we could account for the cost of calling internationally to join the BBC. So when we get an alert from... Um, uh, uh, our audiences and they send their numbers. We call them during the program and, and engage them in a discussion. But the tradition has been going on for long. You know, you have Nadwit al Mustamaeen, you know, um, decades before uh, with um, uh, Rashad Ramadan, uh, the legendary um, late Rashad Ramadan. You had 
the open program uh, where we used to listen letters from audiences um, telling their thoughts, ideas, or selections of poetry and, and literature. So that sort of dialogue with the audience has been there for quite a long time. And with Mahmoud al-Misallami, with his uh, Hamzat Wasl, which is again, you know, building on the same tradition of listening to your audiences, engaging them. Uh, I coined a term back in, in 2000 and I don't know, maybe eight. Um, and I, I call it producers uh, because I was trying to engage audiences in uh, producing a multi-platform program at the time called 710 Greenwich. And, and, and they were my producers. You know, these are the users who are producing the program with me. And that created some kind of a partnership. You know, audiences in the BBC felt very respected and they trusted what they get from the BBC. And that was the, the, the British government's soft power by, by creating that sort of warmth and, and relationship through the BBC, Arabic voices. And, and people got to know a lot about Britain. They got to know about uh, Hyde Park Corner. They got to know about Shakespeare. They got to know quite a lot about Britain and the world, not just, not just Britain. So the, the impact was very strong. And that's why the feeling of loss is very strong. I mean, if you look at the comments from people um, uh, across the Middle East, after the closure of the BBC Radio, they they feel it's it's an it's like a, a you know um, the death of a relative in a way. You know they are mourning the death of of their beloved radio station that they say they listen to because they it's a it's a continuity of a tradition that that people had in families. You know the grand my grandfather used to listen to you read that. You know go go to Facebook see the comments from people. My grandfather used to listen to it. My father used to listen to it every day. We used to sit with my father in the car and listen to all these voices, and that's how we got to know them. It's a family member that was lost, not just a radio station. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
Well, at the beginning of this episode, we heard presenter Mahmoud al-Masallami speak those final words on BBC Arabic radio. For many listeners in the Arab world, his voice was the signature voice of BBC Arabic. And I can personally testify to this because he also happens to be my father-in-law. Whenever I've travelled in the Middle East and mentioned his name, from taxi drivers to massage therapists, people know who he is. I spoke to him a little earlier and began by asking him what it felt like to say those final words on air. On the 27th of January, you broadcast the last ever programme for BBC Arabic Radio. How did it feel to say goodbye to so many listeners? The most difficult feeling in 32 years in the Arabic service and about 50 years in my career. I used to work under pressure. I used to hold my emotions. But at that moment, when I, I just recalled my dad, my granddad, all the generations in Egypt who used to listen to the BBC, I imagined that they are sad. They are not happy. It was very, very difficult. At the end of the broadcast, you said the famous words, Huna London BBC. Can you explain to our global listeners what this means in English and the emotional significance of these words to the Arab world? Thank you very much. This is a very important question. I was very keen to mention two slogans. The BBC used to be known as Huna London Al-Qism Al-Arabiyu It was Here is London or London calling the Arabic section in the British Broadcasting Corporation for a long time, many generations. But maybe 15 years ago or so, we agreed that because we are the only service who doesn't have the word BBC in its slogan, we said, Huna London BBC. That means a lot to every listener. Let me say it was not just a radio station. It was part of the culture, part of life. And also, I'd like to mention here, when you say Radio London or Huna London, people think direct to the current affairs program, to the political thing, because this is the most significant thing about Arabic service. In the old times, it was the only different voice from what you hear in the local media in countries like Egypt or in the Arab world. So in Egypt, I remember my dad, my family sitting aside because it was not nice to listen to it. Maybe some people tell the authorities they listen to London as an enemy between brackets enemy radio station against Nasser, against the country. At this time, I think I was a teenager, maybe 14 years or so, this during the 1967 war. So it was very difficult and they were very keen, very patient to get the radio right and lift and just listen. It was like having a radio station and the transmission is a whistle. It made me deaf when I was very young. That's a fascinating story. So for our listeners, you're referring to basically a time of war in Egypt, the Six-Day War in 1967 between Israel and a coalition of Arab states. And your reference to this whistle is basically a frequency blocker that the Egyptian government under President Nasser put out to stop people being able to tune into the BBC World Service. But as you say, if you were really careful twisting the dial, you might be able to find the right frequency and listen to the World Service in London, often referred to by Egyptians as BBC London. I also want to ask how important BBC Arabic has been in reporting news stories over the last few decades in countries where much of the state media just toes the government line. Simply in 2003, when the Iraqi war started, I was the first one to break the news. The BBC was the only source of information. I think we had about 15 million listeners in Iraq only. And by the way, in the invasion of uh, Kuwait, 
1990, there was a split in the situation. Some countries pro-Kuwait and part of this uh, of the allies, like Egypt, and some parties with Saddam, like Leti Yasser Arafat and Yemen. And this is reflecting on the Arab media. So you listen to different things. You will hear to radio Jordan, for example, or a Palestinian radio. They are pro-Saddam. Restoring Jerusalem will be through Kuwait. I think Yasser Arafat himself said that. But Egypt said, no, we are against that. So you need to hear something different. That's what I'm saying. Before the announcer speaks, you know what we will say, right or left, wrong or right. But the BBC is something different. And one of the other stories that you broke, that one of the most important stories of our time, was about the first plane flying into the Twin Towers on 9-11. Yeah. And there's... An interesting story that you have there to tell about who was listening to your broadcast. Yes. Uh, I've been in the newsroom, the news at one clock, at Greenwich Mean Time, World at one. So suddenly all the TVs in the newsroom, just this tower and smoke coming out of it. The funny thing, I always remember that some people said, it's not important. What's wrong with an aeroplane? Just saying, no, 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 let's start with Arafat visiting Tunis after two years or so. 15 minutes before it ends, the second tower was hit. So the whole thing changed and the whole world was changed. Who was listening to me? I heard this from uh, our uh, former colleague, uh, Yusri Foda. Uh, he went to Al Jazeera after this. And he told me that Osama bin Laden was listening to me. And he said the first time, oh, it was cheer up. And he told, wait, Mahmoud will have another nice news f- for you before the 15 minutes <laughs> bulletin will end. And he got the two news from the BBC Arabic. That's what uh, Yusri said. He was sure of that. He mentioned it in one of his books. So how do you think the closure of BBC Arabic radio will affect the lives of your listeners? If you come to my page on Facebook and on WhatsApp, Thousands of people saying our life is not the same. We are like orphans. One of the, our listeners in Sudan, she said, I'm like orphans. I used to listen to four hours word this morning. Great journalism, great people. This, it will make a very big gap, very big vacuum. Nobody will fill this. Nobody, whoever, even if he paid billions, you have heritage here. You have uh, this uh, history. When I say Hona London, people remember from the first guy, Ahmed Kamal Sulu, in 1938 until now. Uh, it will affect especially those who doesn't have electricity, who doesn't have internet, who just listen to us in their small radios, batteries. I used to get letters from them. I used to have 1,000 paper letter every week, 4,000 a month, in very big bags. And they told me it's a uh, fire hazard. You should find a way to take them. These people, when you stop the short wave, when you stop the middle wave, you lose them. Even if you do the FM, the FM is just a very small place, very clear, but it cannot go through the mountain, cannot go to the desert. We lose these people, millions, I'm sure, millions of people. What is the power of radio for you? You will listen to too many people saying, it's not the time of radio. It's old-fashioned. We are now in a new era. That's not right. But radio has to develop. You should say that. And by the way, Arabic service had some podcasts and we were ready to go digital, by the way. Podcast is part of radio, but doesn't have the nice feeling that you are listening to this program now, like people listening to me, 
and chatting on Facebook while I am on, on air for half an hour, you feel that all the people listening with you at the time. And some of my listeners listen to the first transmission and the three repeats because you, it's it's a feeling that you are with a group of friends. But if you have the podcast, say, okay, I listen to it tomorrow. No, I'm ready now. I stop in the beginning. I drop this idea and just listen to this guy. Fast forward some parts and listen to some parts. Because it's selective, it's up to me. But it's not up to me when I listen to something on air. This is the main difference. Ustad Mahmoud al-Musallami, thank you very much. Thanks, Farah. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Emma, you were smiling while listening to that clip. What was your reaction to that interview? I think I just loved that sense of the, I think the intimacy of, of radio, just the emotions that it can elicit. And it's just so interesting how, you, you, you know, right, I think all the way through the history, you just come across those kind of accounts of just how powerful a medium radio can really be. You know, those early listeners in the late 1920s, just how powerful they felt that to hear a, a, a voice from London speaking to them and just that sense of being so close to them and that they would write letters. I mean, I think as I mentioned letters too, the letters that were coming in, just feeling of that friendship um, and the expression of that, you know, really all, all the way through when you look in the archives, you just see those letters and just how close they feel and how close to all the listeners that they feel and they feel that sense of, of, of family. And it, it, it happens in all the different services in different ways, and, you know, calling the West Indies and the Eastern Service and all the different services, you can just see that. So yeah, it was just lovely to hear that still. And, and the power also very sad too. You know, I, the interesting point that, that Mahmoud raises uh, around the transformation, the digital transformation, to, to me is quite an interesting one because the digital transformation has started in the BBC a long time ago. I was part of that digital transformation. I was part of it because I started my first program with the BBC, which was called the Electronic Cafe Tales. That was about the, the, the coming digital era. It started with the introduction of Dave 2000, the first uh, electronic editing tool in the BBC. In the beginning, we used to cut tapes, you know, with a, with a blade and we stick it with tape and all of the stuff. And when I joined the BBC, the radio uh, operation in, in 1997, that was the, that was the case. We, we cut and paste real tape and real, you know, stickers we use for it. In a few years, we started the digital transformation with, with Dave 2000 and then with Radio Man and ENPS systems. Uh, we started the digital transformation with the launch of BBCArabic.com in November 1999. We experimented with interactivity across platforms, uh, radio and online, with the production of um, uh, programs that, that uh, span across uh, the two platforms and use the audiences as part of the uh, content, the audience responses and reflections and views as part of the content that we produce. The BBC is in a very difficult position, you know, it's between a, a rock and a hard place because the drive has nothing to do with the digital transformation. The drive is financial. It's a simple thing. You know, there's a freeze on the license and a loss uh, um, due to the inflation that will eat part of the budget over the next uh, two years, you know, 10% every year. That's the reason. has nothing to do. The reason is not the digital transformation. We justify um, you know, the continuity of the operation by saying, you know, we will still continue with you. We'll have the podcast, we'll have the, some audio products that we will provide you digitally and so on and so forth. But the digital transformation did not lead um, to the closure of the BBC Arabic radio. Can you just spell out for our international listeners what the changing in funding model has been over the, over the recent years so they understand why there's been so many cost-cutting measures? 
it's it's a problematic issue, and I think you know, as I said probably earlier, this is the the origin of all evils. Uh, that is, but it's realities that you know the the BBC is funded by a license fee. You know, every household that has a television, they say also a color television because you pay less if you have a black and white TV. I don't know if there's anybody who has a black and white TV today, but the the, the license is hundred and fifty nine pounds every year. Uh, in return for which the British audiences are getting news and inter- information, uh, objective, unbiased, um, produced with any influence from sponsors or advertising or the government. That's the that's the promise. Now, from the moment when the BBC introduced BBC Arabic uh, amongst its foreign services, as Emma said in 1938, then the the, the funding for that part for the language services came from the uh, a grant in aid. Uh, decided by the parliament and managed by the foreign office. Now, for quite a long time, there were two budget streams. Each is catering for a particular audience. You know, the internal stream coming from the license fee is for the BBC domestic, the big one that sort of gets around, I don't know, 4 billion, 5 billion pounds a year. Um, 75% of it is from the license fee and the rest is from reinvesting and selling programs across the globe and so on and so forth. That is the main funding stream, the big one for the big BBC for the British audience. And then this minuscule part of the operation, which is the BBC World Service, whose you know budget is around, I don't know, 385 million pounds, you know, compared to the 4 billion, 5 billion, billion pounds, quite a, quite a smaller part, with its language services. Now, over the years, it has been always separate. You can hardly mix these revenues or do things for this audience from that money. You know, everyone should stay within his own budget. Come 2013, where, when the government decided that from 2014 onwards, the BBC will have to finance the World Service Operation. No more budget from the parliament or the foreign office. You know, you... You you keep that operation as part of your operation, and you 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 fund it from the license fees. And that is that is a moment when I think the BBC found itself in a very difficult position. They are not getting this license fee from the audiences to serve another audience. You know, so quite a number of changes have happened for which you had to justify that world service operation as a content hub, in part for the BBC, for the larger BBC, and at the same time, probably we would serve the other audiences. But in my view, that's a big change because your audience focus would change, yeah? And that would have consequences in terms of how you produce your programs and what sort of topics and themes and so on and so forth. The the government was stopping it up from time to time. You know, they negotiated afterwards and they said, okay, we will will top it up with 100 million from our side on top of the 385 or 400 million pounds for the BBC. But, you know, this, this year they decided that they are going to freeze, you know, you know, first of all, we lost the specific budget that was coming to the World Service from 2014 onwards, most of it anyway. And from 2023, you're going to have a freeze on the license fee. So the whole BBC is losing 10% annually due to inflation. And as a, as a result, they had to make a saving of about half a billion pounds, 500 million pounds. 400 jobs were lost in the BBC World Service, proportionately another number from the rest of the BBC, and savings have to be achieved, 30 million for, or 28.5 million from the BBC World Service. That will be reflected in the loss of these 
radio operations, the analog radio operations, of course, the cost in transmission and the medium wave and so on and so forth, and the, the FM licenses, all of that will stop. And that's where you would, you would do the saving, as well as the loss of something like 400 jobs in the BBC World Service. So these are tough realities that the BBC ha- has to manage. And, and they have to come to the audiences and say something. You know, the government has done it, but the BBC has to justify it, which, which is tough. Thanks for explaining that. We've spoken during this discussion about Britain's soft power around the world. And one of the ways that the BBC impacts other countries is that foreign governments get annoyed by its presence. So we've seen in recent times, Russia has banned the BBC because of their coverage in Ukraine. And in 2021, uh, BBC World News was banned in China. It was accused of damaging China's national interests. At the same time, last year, BBC revived um, its shortwave content in Ukraine to allow Ukrainians to listen to the BBC on small radios when it was blocked from listening to it online. Sam and Emma, what are your thoughts on the banning of the BBC and what that reflects about the importance of it as a source of accurate news today? Well, that, yeah, it's an interesting question, I guess, as a historian. I'm just interested in, in those moments when it, it, there has been that attempt to stop the BBC from broadcastings and, and, that, and how that reflects just how influential radio can be and that the, the the desire to, to jam the signals does say a lot about the power of, of the BBC. And you see it in the Second World War, people living in occupied Europe, you know, just finding strategies to be able to get shortwave radios, to find the technology, to find ways of secretly listening. Um, and then in, during the Cold War, people finding ways to, to listen to the BBC um, Russian services and things like this so that when it's being jammed and sort of, yeah, it just says a lot, I think, just about the power of radio and to see that happen historically, you know, a number of, of moments. And also, I think, as you were saying then about the reintroduction of the shortwave, that, that, that shortwave technology there is a bit of resistance that it is a good technology to have getting around some of that jamming sometimes. Like it's very, it can be very subject to sort of atmospheric interference and things like this, but it has been a great technology for that, being able to get around some of those attempts to block um, radio communication. And Hussam, your, your, your reflections on essentially the power of the BBC World Service around the world today as a source of, you know, different content, impartial by many perspectives, different to, especially in times of conflict, the state media? The problem is that impartial to you is biased uh, to somebody else's, you know, and and that is the problem the BBC has been facing, you know, for quite a long time, even with the British government. You know, when when you were talking about the radio devices and and shortwave in in the Ukraine, I remembered also that we tended to send clockwork radios. I don't know if you have seen any of these clockwork radios in some parts of the world, you know, where people, even if if you don't have access to power or batteries, you can sort of just like a like a, a like a, a clock, you know, uh, and 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 then you power it this way manually, and that's the beauty of these devices. You know, they can be a lifeline in places where you really have, you know, floods. I mean, if you have a flood, or you have a hurricane, or you have a storm, or you have, you know, rights and power cuts. You know, the, the, you turn to radio because because that's the small device that you can put two small batteries in, and listen to vital information that can save your life. And that's what the BBC did in, in places like Darfur. You know, we had a special broadcast in Darfur. We had a team working in Darfur, providing people with vital information about their life, you know, sanitization, water, you know, power, electricity, everything. Uh, health, you know, we, we, we did that. And, 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 and we served an audience that is really um, uh, underserved and underprivileged. 
governments tend, as as you said, to be somehow a little bit edgy about the BBC content, and that hap- that that still continues to happen. I mean, it's not just uh, as you know we were talking earlier; it's not just during the um, Arab Spring. You know, a few years ago, two thousand nineteen, Egypt blocked uh, transmission. Uh, sorry, blocked the uh, the the BBC uh, websites uh, together with a number of other websites from Al Hurra and other. Uh, foreign broadcasters. Uh, still, it's you know governments are anxious about about um, uh, the existence of information sources that claim to be or tend to try to be as objective and as impartial as possible. You know it causes anxiety, and that's why it's important to keep and maintain these independent voices. Uh, and it's it's really a pity that the British government does not seem to feel now how important its soft power is. And how vital uh, this public uh, service is for um, many people across the globe. And interestingly, the, the the global audience for the BBC is growing. You know, it was, you know, few, few years ago, probably two years ago, it was around 400 million users or, or people listening or consuming BBC information globally. I think this year the BBC will hit something like 500 million. Uh, so the, the the need is growing, and and people still consume and respect and appreciate and would like to continue to have access to this kind of information. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the the government doesn't seem, the British government doesn't seem to be aware of the importance of that to some audiences. Um, they probably would want only to continue serving those who, the, the elite audience who have access to the internet and laptops and smartphones. Well, I'm sure we could continue having this conversation for hours, but unfortunately our time is now up. Hussam, Emma, thank you very much for joining us from around the world, from Australia and from Egypt. That was Hussam Al-Sakari, former head of BBC Arabic, and Emma Robertson, historian and co-author of BBC World Service Overseas Broadcasting. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by me, Farah Jassat, and Catherine Hughes, with editing from Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us.